been at the Friends of the Library for two years now, and uh, I've met a lot of really beautiful people, and uh, got a chance today to speak to somebody who volunteers there, um, and uh, has been a pretty decorated journalist uh, her whole professional life. Got a chance today to sit down and talk to her. Julie Dahl, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Thanks for having me, Jake. It's great to be here, and I love to talk journalism, so let's start. I actually just want to go back talk a little bit about um, in your um, family uh, was there somebody who always told kept sort of encouraged you to keep an open mind about things uh, you know because what we've been talking about off air just object objectivity how have you learned to stay objective and was there somebody early on who said hey think for yourself uh, my parents really uh did that in in so many different ways and pretty subtly. We subscribed to three newspapers when I was growing up and more magazines than I can count and had bookcases and bookcases full of books. We had arguments over Christmas dinner on everything from um, tax policy to how the president was doing and uh, and a lot of times the answer if we would ask a question like, well, is abortion wrong or right? The answer, although my parents were very pro-life, very conservative, would be that's something you have to decide for yourself. Wow. See, I I consider that so level-headed. You know, I mean, that to me is like, there was no, you weren't, there was no demagoguing about it. Exactly. It wasn't like, because I believe this, you must believe it. Exactly. There was no, this is wrong, this is right. It would be like, this is the benefits if we did this, and this is the benefits if we did that, and, you know, so... I can remember talking to my dad about Castro and Cuba and whether mm-hmm. the overthrow of, of the U.S.-backed regime was a good thing. And, and I pointed out, I said, well, you know, people are have better health care and better education. So he goes, yeah. He goes, Castro may have been the best thing that happened to Cuba. So, <laughs> and that came from a conservative. So Absolutely. Well, Kansas, I mean, Kansas to me... I mean, you had, if I remember correctly, I mean, there was a lot of experiment, experimental stuff going on at the universities as related to psychedelics. This is before you were born. But I think Ferlin Getty was there. There were a lot of, it was a very, I don't know, it was kind of an avant-garde place. But what, do you, were there any remnants of that when you uh, became sort of aware of, of society, you know, like what was going on in the world? Um, I would say... A counterculture, so to speak? Yeah, I would say... Somewhat, but very little. I, I don't think it was it was very marked. I think it, the bigger thing is probably that Kansans, um, like my dad and mom, were, were just used to thinking for themselves. And right. I think, so when they had the abortion vote a couple of years ago, where Republicans thought they could get it written into the Constitution, that the, our, the Kansas Constitution did not support abortion. That's right. The voters just said, yeah, no, we're not going along I with that one. I remember they were the, they were such a bellwether. That was like the first big vote after yeah, yeah, the Dobbs yeah. decision, totally. yeah. Yeah. Think for yourself. Wow. So, you're, I'd, I'd love you to talk a little bit about, like, um, you play, you were into kind of a lot of different things, and then one day this teacher was like, hey, you know, Maybe you want to consider journalism. Can you take us through, like, how you wound up finding, you know, your purpose? Yeah, well, I always joke that um, that I, I kind of fell into journalism for lack of a better plan. But once I started working on the paper in college, I really enjoyed it. I really liked the, just the collegial 
uh, feel among other journalists. I like being able to make a difference, uh, bringing a issue of importance to that community, which in that case was a college community, and then seeing how it played out. You know, we didn't make the decisions, but we tried to give people the information they needed to make good decisions, and that's how I really see the role of community journalists is giving, identifying important issues and then giving people the information on those issues they need to make smart decisions. Can you give an example from that time of what you're talking about? Um, I'm going to skip ahead to when we were, uh, uh, when I was working at the, the paper in Hayes, Kansas, and this was back in the 19, like, late 1980s. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, there there was a farm crisis going on. A record number of farmers were going were going bro- broke, going bankrupt, being driven off their farms. Farm Be- aid concert came from that. Yes, absolutely, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, and and uh, if you think interest rates are high now, <laughs> check back to what they were when they signed up for those farm loans back then. But so we spent. Uh, we spent probably a good two to three months just going around to every county in our region, finding out how many farmers had declared bankruptcy, looking into possible solutions, what kinds of aid or assistance or changes of policies might help, mm. and and did a lot of coverage of that, which was used by officials at the state and the federal level to write the new farm bills, help write the new farm bills, and address those kinds of concerns. So Really? Yeah. So that, was, that seems like it was, a, well, of course, it was a very logical time in America. America wasn't perfect, but you're telling me it came up from the, the roots of the community, up to the state, up to the federal level. Yes. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, I've worked at papers in, in Lafayette, Indiana, and uh, where we had a uh, a distressing number of children being killed by caretakers, parents and step-parents and others. And and so, you know, again, we identified that as an issue. We started giving it, just pounding on it. Some people probably thought we gave it way too much coverage, but to us it was like, there's something wrong. If you can't even protect a three-year-old from being mistreated and eventually killed by a step-parent, and we had community meetings. There were changes in state law. Let me ask you, what was the law? This is fascinating. There was no, like, CPS kind of thing going on? Like, what, what were the changes? There were, in- there were, but, for example, um, for the most part, uh, uh, citing the family's privacy, oh, yes. they wouldn't let release any information. So it was impossible to know where the accountability should lie. You know, was it CPS? Was it local police? Did things get reported but then not investigated? It Nobody really knew. And so they changed the law to make it easier to try to get those, uh, those records released in cases where they should be released. And we had some, uh, locally in Lafayette, Indiana, we had some good judges who really helped us along on, on Even that Even if no matter well. what their, no matter if they were conservative, they still were like, they recognized that this was a yes. major crisis. Absolutely. Because kids were dying. Yes, yes. This is heavy stuff already, Julie. You're really blowing me away right now. Um, going back to the college paper, I think you told me a story yesterday about, you did sometimes 
help influence people. Is oh, that right? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Can you tell and, me, I forget what, and, you were uh, what the specific thing was. What? When I was uh, in college, it was the late 70s, and, and so um, our college president decided that there was this big old empty, burned-out shell of a building mm-hmm. called Nichols Gym. And he decided it needed to be torn down and turned into another parking lot. Uh, because college campus parking is always an issue, always use more parking. But um, some of us at the paper thought that was a lousy idea and that we should save Nichols Gym and restore it and use, turn it into something useful. And so uh, we wrote a story about, about the plan to tear it down and talk to people who wanted to save it. We wrote lots of editorials about saving it. Um, a lot of public awareness raising the... Yeah, yeah the administration uh, complained to our advisor that we were being advocates and were biased. And our um, advisor kind of shrugged and said, yeah, probably. <laughs> so even though I am a big fan of objective journalism, you know, I think there are times when just your views of things probably do influence, no doubt, they do, not probably. Yeah, yeah, they do influence right, yeah. how you present an issue. There's no doubt about that. Um, I, this is sort of a, more of a macro question, but my, my brother's the editor of the Idaho Press up in Boise, and um, I mean, I, I'm not going to say that I, I'm on the ground and I know what's going on, but it just can you talk about how hard journalism, we talked about it on the TV side, but just in general, how had it, it has markedly changed uh, and what I mean by that is, like, I just see a lot of the stories that he's... Either they're picking stuff up from the AP. A lot of it is just... I don't want to say fluff, but it's really not... It's not journalism. Yeah. And I wanted you to talk about, from your arc, when that started to change. Because in the late 80s, I mean, the, there was a period of time where, you know, there was still... Uh, journalism was... Was a trusted source of not. Uh, it was an objective source of solid, hard news. And now, and even at the local level, where the papers like you worked at, not just the Atlanta Journal Constitution or the Times, can you just talk about when you started to see a, a, a change in the, not just the budgets, but also like, you know, basically a, a move from hardening of journalism to sort of soft? Well, I I guess I would argue that uh, there's still a lot of good, hard journalism. And uh, again, going back to my roots in Kansas, um, not too long ago, there was a very small weekly paper who had uh, been doing some stories on their city government that uh, some people in city government apparently objected to, even though they hadn't actually even published it. They were still just working on the information. And so the police chief organized an illegal raid of the newspaper and the newspaper See, publishers. This is what I'm talking about. This is, what oh. this is insane. <laughs> what, what, was this recent? Very recent? Yeah, a few yeah. months ago. And uh, it happened in Marion, Kansas. The paper is the Marion Record. And, uh, and so they confiscated a bunch of computers and phones and records uh, from the newspaper publishers. Home. The newspaper publisher's mother, who was 98 years old, died of a heart, I think a heart attack the next day. Um, it, was, it was an awful sort of thing. Uh, the publisher's name's Eric Meyer, and, and he fought it. And, and uh, newspapers across the country, and especially those in Kansas, and the Kansas Press Association 
took a leadership role in all of this, made sure that they could still publish the newspaper with help from other newspapers because they took all their equipment. Um, Did they actually sue the, the, the city for doing what? They have sued them, but as I point out, you know, when you sue a city, um, the people really responsible aren't paying the price. Taxpayers are paying the price. It's just more unfairness. If, but you know, in if the past, me. Did, did you did you have a, a time, whether in California or Indiana, where um, I, to me that that is just uh, emblematic of the police state, right there, where it's like the city council gets up in arms about something, and then they send in law enforcement and, and, and I, mean, I would I would argue in my career I, I tended to see that kind of stuff throughout my career in different places you have good you have good public officials and you have bad ones you, you have ones who are power trips yeah. you have not um, and so I think it just really depends we we had a judge in Hayes who um, closed a preliminary hearing because the local district attorney was facing coke charges and and his attorney didn't want it to happen in public, so they agreed to close it. I'm sitting there going, how the, how can you do that? And by the time we hired an attorney and got it open, it was all over. And they said, well, yeah, you can give the tran- we'll give you the transcript. It'll cost you this much money, which was an outrage that we had to pay for it. And then it was so garbled you couldn't understand it. So uh, it, you know, it was just a... Uh, yeah, I, so I think that has that has always happened. And if you look back through history, I think it, that's always been an issue. And one of the things that the press has done, newspapers in particular have done, is keep local government honest. The problem is, as you were saying, they don't have the resources to do that now. That's what I'm saying. Is yeah. It, when, that, that, that's better. when did you see a, 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 an emphasis on cutting costs at all costs in the newspaper? Not that it was ever bloated, but I, that's what my brother faces now. They continually bring in new publishers yeah. who are, like, adamant. They've been to seven different papers because their job is to come in and just clear, clean house. And yet all you're doing is putting more work on less people, yeah. and you're going to get marginal, you know, less quality work. When did you start seeing that in the, in the industry? I, th- I think it uh, is partially due to uh, corporate ownership in terms of like every other kinds of publicly traded companies, right. uh, and or if it's a hedge fund or if it, if it's publicly traded, nobody's looking beyond the next quarter. You know, they're looking at what kind of return are you going to give me on the next financial report, not what serves the financial and public interests of the newspaper. And so, I think really starting about two thousand. Uh, on every time hard times a little downturn in the economy they expected you to make cuts and then it would never really come back and then the internet came in and kind of undercut a lot and but newspapers were not nearly as innovative and creative and aggressive as they needed to be to get on that platform and make it work and then I hadn't really thought of this, but I was talking to an old boss of mine a couple weeks ago, and we were talking about things. And he said the other thing that he sees that really happened that was uh, that changed the whole landscape and made it much much harder for local newspapers is that really retail in America has just been gutted. 
Talk about that. Especially a lot of t- a lot of small towns used to have a department store and a men's clothing store. That's a very good point. Local, gift local, shops. Local. Yes, local <laughs> retail stores that helped sustain newspapers through their advertising dollars, which advertising always paid like 70% of, mm-hmm. of the bill for, for most newspapers, and subscribers paid about 30%. That's a rough thing, and it could change you know, 10% in either way, but usually it's like a 7-30 split, mm-hmm. 70-30 split. For and the national big papers and the small papers, it's always across the board kind of the way? Well, I know that was true for smaller papers. I couldn't tell you for Metro. It, when you, once you get into Metro papers, uh, those classifieds with all the car and real estate and jobs, those... Comics. Yeah, those paid those paid really big. Those classified advertisers, right. but um, right. but so as as towns lost those those kinds of stores that that advertised, um, that really that really undercut financially what you could do, who you could hire, all of that. Do you think that uh, papers have now? I mean, in fairness, we had we went from dial-up modem to the internet. You know, iPhones came along in like 2011. Have have newspapers gotten a little bit, you know, a little bit hipper on on, on adjusting to the times? Well, I think uh, actually the company I worked for was was pretty hip in the beginning, but then was not willing to continue to make investments. Yeah, and I wor- I worked for Gannett for 15 years, so at one point they had the top rated uh, classified jobs mm-hmm. app or program at the time, CareerBuilder.com, and you might go on. Oh yeah, I think I remember I that. Do remember that? Yeah. Yeah. So they got on top, but they in my view, did not invest in the technology and the research to keep it on top. Um, they had cars.com. Again, uh, the cars.com, when they split their TV and, and uh, newspaper divisions, for some reason, the newspaper division, which developed cars.com, sent that off to the TV part of it. So I guess to make it to raise more money. Mm-hmm. I, they could get more money if that was with that. I don't know. But anyway, so I think technology-wise, I worked with some really fantastic people who I would match against anybody at Facebook or Google or anyone else as far as developing online services and programs. But it's just that the, news, the newspaper corporate culture was so focused on the next earnings report that they weren't willing to put the money into it that you needed to put you're, into you're, it. You're, you're sort of targeting like roughly turn of the century, kind of 2000, 2001 in that area? Yes, but even into like 2005, 2006. Yeah. Well, you let's know. talk about the 90s. The 90s was sort of a glory. It was a beautiful, looking back at that. Can you talk about... I always actually wanted to ask you, because um, I read this article that you wrote about your Christmas Christmas wish list. This was going back maybe a couple of years. But it, it almost read like an editorial. And I did you have opportunities to to write editorials ever? Um I did and I used to write some for for the paper here in Tucson, but since their latest round of layoffs I don't really have a so contact you, okay, anymore. So that, I'm trying to remember I thought that, that the editorial about um, I wish for this. I, wish uh-huh. for, I thought that was from the Kansas one, but maybe that was that was Arizona. It might have been. I some of them might, and I still have contacts back in Kansas. I love so, it. so I do it for 
I would do it for both of the. What was of the, the early seminal editorial that you you think back on and, and sort of you feel like you found maybe you, you helped help find your voice? Oh boy, I don't know. We were always encouraged to write, uh, in, even when I was in high school and in college. So I wrote a column a lot in in uh, in college at, for the college paper. Mm. So there are some that kind of stand out. I don't know that they were especially well written, but that. Uh, What's the stands out? I mean, it doesn't mean what was inspired. Look, thinking back on it, what gives you that feeling of like, wow? Well, like here's one. Since we're we're both active with Friends of the Library. So back in Hayes, Kansas, mm. there was a, a, a bill in the state legislature to help public libraries across the state. Because uh, it was, you know, one of the hard times and they just needed a little boost. And, yeah. and, uh, and, and so the bill got through the legislature, I was going to, but the governor said, no, he goes, that's too much money. We can't do that. And so... And so he was a good guy. I liked Mike Hayden, but we disagreed on that on that bill. And and so the bill died. I can't remember if he vetoed or didn't make it through the legislature, but it died. And so I wrote an editorial said, you know, we're talking ten cents. This is a dime per Kansan. That's how much money we're talking that would really help our libraries. So. You know, below you will find a little circle. You can tape a dime to it, and you can send it to the governor. And <laughs> and they were a little upset what because year was this? it would have been somewhere in the in probably the late eighties. Okay, so uh, or nineteen ninety somewhere was, around that. Was still a complete print medium situation at that point for the, for the news. Well, I mean, you, you know, we had TV, we had radio. Of course, but, but, but yeah. people. Could, I mean, it, it, uh, yeah, you would. You could. You had a place where you could tape a dime. Yes, yes. You had a physical newspaper. You could tape a dime to it and send it to the governor's Tell office. Me that took off. Did it, it did oh take off. God. And so then they had to figure out, because they can't just take money like that from the yeah. public. <laughs> right. So they had to set up some system to actually funnel it into the newspaper. So, so they, they, they were like, okay, how do we take all these dimes? Yeah. <laughs> so so it's awesome. It was, yeah. That's it was awesome. a lot of fun. And, and it's just... It, it, it taught me that people will get engaged if you hit the right nerve, the right chord, and, and tell them how they can help, how they can make a difference. That's right. Like, and how, how little it would actually make, it collectively, to make a difference. Yeah. That's really... And how small, if we all act together, it doesn't take a big sacrifice from any of us, yeah, you know. Well, it's that's just, what I feel more than... I mean, I don't know if that was just something that you've always been that had inside of you it always seems like you're like if we're all pulling in the same direction then we will be able to solve more problems than we won't and that seems I wish that 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 philosophy was more prevalent within our society but when you get to the level of like you know especially the consolidation like Gannett was one of many publishers or many companies and then it got all down like truncated it got all consolidated and then after that, it just became a much more. I guess maybe the word I'm looking for is generic. It just became. Oh uh, yes. You know, yeah, you know, people were joking. One more Kansas story. I believe. No, I, I do. I, I swear dude, this I, is the I, last I, I, one. I, we don't get enough. Of but um, but I worked for a while um, for a newspaper in Hutchinson, Kansas, which has it has now been kind of hollowed out to almost nothing. Right. 
and very little of the work actually gets done in Hutchinson. And so the the other day, or a few weeks ago, um, somebody far away was putting together their front page and grabbed a story out of Hutchinson about the senior center and all the things they were planning for winter to keep seniors busy. The only problem was it was a story out of Hutchinson, Minnesota. And so that's what was on their front page in Hutchinson, Kansas. That's, see, that, that's and, it. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, we, we like to whine and complain, those of us who are retired from, from the business, that, you know, that's why you need local people making local exactly. decisions about what's well, locally that's important. Good, that's exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, you know, and if you have, a, if your staff's been emaciated and there's way too much burden on too many small people, things like that are just going to happen. Yeah. If you were going to, like, talk about, I sort of asked you this yesterday, but I mean, um, the lineage of your of your writing in terms of like uh, it doesn't even have to necessarily be journalists. Are, are there certain authors or you know everybody, including myself? I mean, whether you're a musician, when you learn your instrument, you beg, borrow, and steal everything you can, and then you sort of go fishing and find your own voice. But in you know, and, and for me as a broadcaster, I, I definitely have had you know Bob Costas, Marv Albert, a lot of these guys have always, you know, they've they've, they've influenced me. Were, were mm-hmm. there writers? That, oh yeah, definitely. Talk about some of the, the lineage. Of- um, it, the one who really stands out to me is is uh, a columnist because all of us, I think, not maybe not all, but many many journalists wanted to grow up to be columnists. Absolutely. <laughs> and many non-journalists want to be columnists. So. Um, I had friends who said I wanted I wanted to be the next Irma Bombeck, and I'm going. Why would you want to be Irma Bombeck when you could be Mike Royko? And to me, Royko was now that's the what, tell me about best. It. Break it down because this is new for me. Yeah, I don't know that Mike name. Royko is a, uh, was a Chicago columnist. How do you spell his um, last name? R O Y K O. Okay. Uh, just extraordinarily good. Uh, got out of the army, needed a job. Uh, so was tried to go to college, but couldn't hold down a full-time sure. job and, and, and go to college. So he ended up just doing the newspaper thing for his job. Um, won a Pulitzer. Just extraordinarily gifted writer. Uh, a little satire, a little... Um, he also wrote a pretty good book on the Mayor Daly. Right. He worked for the Tribune. Is that he did? He, well, he worked, he started out working for the um, Chicago Sun Times, right. and then when Murdoch bought the Chicago Sun Times, he goes, "There's no way I'm working for that." Right. Sob. So he went to, uh, I believe, he went to the Tribune after that. So yeah. Wow. Yeah. See, I mean, that my grandfather had a weekly column for Women's Wear Daily called "From Where I Sit," and he was not. I mean, this is just the whole point. He was not college-educated. Uh, he uh, didn't have a degree, per se. It doesn't sound like this guy you're talking about, too. You know, he, at the time, like, um, do you feel like, in general, um, and, and this is just a sort of a statement across the board, like, that too much is made of, of degrees... And no, absolutely not. Okay, because what I'm saying is that there's just because you, but you do recognize the, the the natural talent of some people 
regardless of whether they have. I'm not talking oh, about. Oh, sure. You know, I mean, you know, in, in the case of Royko and this guy, I doubt he had a journalism degree. I don't even think he did. Yeah. And my grandfather didn't either. Right. They were fantastic. Yeah. So I'm just, I, I wanted you to break, you can riff on that any way you want. Okay. I'm not trying to say, um, it's not, I'm yeah. not trying to bash education. I, yeah, I definitely do not think a journalism degree is necessary to practice journalism. Okay. I always, I always told people, they, when they, if they asked, I said, to be a good journalist, you need three things. You need some knowledge of how to use the English language effectively. You have to have a commitment to be fair. And you have to have a curiosity about the world. To me, that's what you need. Your major can be in archaeology sure. or biology or nothing at all. I, you know, I hired reporters who, because of their religious background, didn't believe in higher education. Um, I hired people who with paleontology degrees. Um, you know, to me, that was not as important as, as a lot of other things. Hold on a second. You, you, you were in a position to hire people? Yeah. And so and so you would take on a wide spectrum? Of, of yeah. Oh, I mean, I didn't set out to do that. No. In, in every instance, I just, you would post the job and you would get applicants and, and you would try to get people who... Fit. Who, um, who would bring to the job those three elements mm -hmm. that... That I think are really important. Explain those. Uh, I mean, go through those three elements one by. Let's go through those. What's the first one? A knowledge of how to use the English language effectively. That may be the most important one uh, because that can wrap people, bring people in. You know, if you can use it, almost like poetry in some ways. So, use of the English language effectively. Mm -hmm. What's the second one? Commitment to be fair. Essence. And then the, I, I remember the third one was uh, a general curiosity about the world. Yes. Large, yeah. yeah. Did you did you make any mistakes in your hiring? Oh sure. I think I think everybody has. I always like to say my mistakes weren't as bad as some other people I worked with, but <laughs> but I think we all we all do sure. that. Of so. course, of course. Um, do you feel? Can you just talk to to younger cats who are going to hear this? Today or tomorrow or 50 years from now, uh, you're, what, are you, what are the most effective qualities of leadership in the newsroom? I think um, a willingness to help other people succeed and to recognize that your own success uh, had a lot of other people behind it. Um, did that continue to talk about it? You can even include yourself if you want, but who was, a, who was a great leader that you worked for that exemplified that? You know, I, I worked with so many great people. I, I always felt um, that the most successful newsrooms I was in, it, it was always a team effort. And the, and the projects I did, it was always a team effort. Um, it, John Lee was probably one of my early mentors. Where was he? He, at? Was the, he was the publisher, editor and publisher of the Hayes mm -hmm. Kansas newspaper uh, when I first worked there. And then when I went back through a management training program, he was my, uh, he was kind of my mentor as I went through that management training program in Hayes. And then I replaced him as editor and publisher at Hayes. And he got promoted up to headquarters. But it's the idea of, like, no sabotage, right? I mean, you're always, 
the, the leader can look at it and say, this person's infringing on my power. Exactly. And in, in, in fact, I mean, if, if you're going to do that, you're just going to undercut. It happens. Everybody. Unfortunately, that's, yeah. you know, that's part of and, it. And I've also worked with people who, who cannot give up that. Because some of us, I think a lot of the appeal of journalism is seeing your name and your byline and wanting that recognition. And I worked with a woman once, and she was very, very good at what she did. She was an investigative data reporter, so she would go through data and, and make it tell a story and uncover all kinds of great stories that way. And so we asked her to spend half of her time helping other reporters do what she did. And so she helped some reporters do some really good projects. And when we submitted them for contest, she insisted that her name be listed first. And it's like, yeah, that's, as editors, that's really not what we do. Yeah, and it's like, how about just like be, be grateful that you're on there. You're, you're, okay, you're there. I mean, you, you collaborated on it. But, you know, so, you know it's like the idea of being, yeah. being number one. Yeah, well, and like I said, I mean, I think that's part of the appeal of journalism. Yeah, no, but in some ways, it's like, you know, uh, in, in any band, the best, most effective band, the most effective leaders are people that bring in cats to do what they do, and they don't micromanage them. There's nothing yeah. worse than somebody who has no idea what they're doing, but yet they're so power-hungry that they might be strong in one area, but then they think that they have the ability to have knowledge across all spectrums. Yes. So then they micromanage, and then you suck all the creative soul out of yeah. anybody who wants to work. You're absolutely right. I mean, in, I've, I had some bosses like that, and, I, and I've seen them at work where it's like, you know, I worked for a newspaper company once that, um, not Gannett, a, a more respected one, that thought that they should be deciding what beats we had at the newspaper. And I'm sitting there going... What the heck? I, really? You, are you anywhere... Are you, how many miles away from the, from the ground are you? you know? yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like, how do you know whether we need an oh, aviation yeah. beat or right. not? Or whether we need a... Yeah, you know, I, I, I had another really good uh, editor, Derek Osinenko in Poughkeepsie, New York. He was very, very good. Really... Uh, really committed to training and, and doing things right and and he would he would be one he goes well because we should change our beats every two years let's not change all of them but we need to review them we had we had a change beat because I lived in Poughkeepsie at a time when IBM was laying off something close to 30,000 people they had a place they had a company they had a shop up there yeah wow. yeah the 90s? A or? couple of them, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 80s. I moved there in 94, and that was Dude, mid I spent many, the big layoff. many, many summers in, 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 in uh, Elizaville. So yeah. I used to go to the diner. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. IBM even had a country club in Poughkeepsie, in Spackenkill. Yeah. So, but... So, he would, <laughs> so they continue. They were the... So, so actually, yeah. So he had this... We had this, like, change beat. And it was, it was somebody who basically... Analyzed, looked and analyzed right, at ways right, right. that IBM okay, well, laying off all those people had changed our communities yeah, from drops in the tax base to commuter habits because more people were going sure, commuting down sure. to the city now that they didn't have jobs locally. So housing prices, yeah, all kinds of stuff. That's a si- I was so unaware of that in my little youth. I, I mean, yeah. I, no, I wasn't aware of that. That's a. Uh, do you, you know, this is. 
this is uh, quite something I was in your not asking you to prognosticate, but just based on your experience, what is uh, what is the future of newspapers over the next half century? Well, I hope that we. What does your uh, gut tell you? Yeah, I hope that we move away from the thinking that that newspapers, and maybe we will call it something else, has to be a physical paper entity. I I am really a big believer that you can be a website and be a fantastic Absolutely. local news site. I don't I don't think there's anything magical about um, newspapers. In fact, back in the 80s and 90s, I used to like root for the days that we could stop trying to pay nine-year-olds to deliver our product that we put our heart and soul in. Why? It's just because it's not fair to the nine-year-old. <laughs> That's so. No, they think it's great. They're getting a, they're getting some money. <laughs> Paper route, <clears throat> but no. So you're talking about taking away the actual, the physical, applica- the hard copy. But right. That that you can have a online prolific newspaper. Exactly. And in fact, and I used to. I also made this argument that the before the internet, the only advantage TV and radio had was timeliness. Otherwise, we could do everything sure. radio or TV do. So with the Internet, we could, we could beat them on time, too. So we could post news as quickly as they did. You know? And when I was in Lafayette, Indiana, we did things like um, we ran a, a live um, story with updates like every 30 minutes at least on Election Day saying, here's the polling places where there's no line, Here, there's a problem here, right. people are finding here, if you want to go vote, don't go to the student union at Purdue, because there's a backup, but if you go two blocks... Something that was very something. relevant to the people in the community. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And we invited people to, to add to that as sure. well, you right. know, and, Comment and on, do yeah, that. What do you see? So, I really think that there is a, a place um, for community journalism... The question is how you how you make a living do it, how you monetize it, you know. And it, it doesn't need to be corporate. There's a lot of nonprofit uh, news sites that have started up in Arizona. Pretty much every state, I think, has one now. Um, Are there any ones that you can pull my 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 code to? Um. That you like, I mean, or that are like that can pay a livable wage to their. Um, well, with the help of some very generous uh, benefactors, they they do pay some pay some pretty decent salaries. Okay. The Texas Tribune is probably pointed to as the most uh, successful on? one, Austin. Uh, so uh, there's one here in Tucson. That is it, the Arizona Sentinel. Tucson yeah, Sentinel. Tucson I've come Sentinel. across yeah. it yeah. on occasion, but I don't. I'm not. I don't follow it real closely. So, but so I, you know, I think people are still fishing around for different kinds of, of uh, models and what's going to work and what's not going to work. You think it's going to have a, maybe a, a different name altogether? Maybe no more. It wouldn't be called a newspaper. It might. It's, it's hard. It's hard to know. Years. You know, communications has become so fragmented. I know. You know, so disparate. Yeah. 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 yeah totally. Yeah. Well, no. I mean, that, it's, it's kind of like it's kind of like record albums now, which aren't really albums, but you call them well, new album is out. Well, no. I mean, no, because you know what's happened. I don't want to get into this, but the truth is that 
uh, you get all these old albums are being reissued. Yes. So it's I mean, and then and then a lot of newer bands are just like, I'd rather press my new music on vinyl. Yeah. So there's a resurgence there. You know, you know, but there's a resurgence, but that that's not the majority of sales. Absolutely. So so it, it, every there's just so many options for people out there now. And and so as as much as we want to complain it is true. about there's too many options. <laughs> that's the that's the big, you just hit the you know one final question for you. Set one here, Julia Dow is just um, is there anything? Uh, two questions: Are you at peace with your career, or is there something that you still would like to pursue, even if it's as independent journalist, uh, you know, within the field of writing or reporting? I, I really don't have any, I don't feel like I have any big unfinished business. Okay, seriously, what are you passionate about now? You know, and does it correlate over to anything that would be considered uh, something that you would want to publish? I don't, yeah, I don't think that I, I feel any need to publish any mm-hmm. anything more. I still like to write. I just, I'm a mouthy person with a lot of opinions. I like so I, I do like to write um, opinion pieces. Uh, I like I like to try to find a way to to get people from either side to look at an issue and and I think somehow if if I could get involved in something that would um, decrease the amount of and, and it's overused but polarization you know I was I was looking at um, at a, an NPR guy, Steve Inskeep, mm-hmm. um, was sharing how he's just taking it from both pro-Israeli and pro-Palestinian sure. sides now, who both find fault with his reporting out of Israel, and is he's like, and it, the, ironically, he just published a book called "Differ We Must," or <laughs> something like that. But so yeah, so. But the whole point of social media, so much of for so many people, seems to be just to hate on people, and and I don't know how we move beyond that. But we have to move beyond that. Well, <laughs> to me, it just starts with people creating their own content and not receiving information. I mean, it's very hard, but in some ways, it's not. Uh, you know, people can take shots at you, but at the end of the day, it's like. Um, I think, I think that, you know, we are much less divided in some ways than people, than the way it's portrayed. I think that's probably true. You know, I think that there's actually, I I do feel like there's still quite a majority of, there's a majority of good over, or light over dark, you know, Mm -hmm. and I I, I still want to believe that. And I don't think I'm in denial about that. Even though there's been a lot of crazy stuff that's gone on probably the last, I don't know, since I really started my show. But, um, yeah, I would say, like, truth in, uh, because there are so many options, uh, people wind up getting sucked into these funnels of, of uh, completely of disinformation. And so they're living in these alternate realities. That didn't exist necessarily when you had three TV stations or, 
you know, declarative papers where you could say, no, these are the facts. Now it's well, just sort of... not only that, but, but it wasn't so easy for what I consider to be bad actors to be basically paying people for propaganda right, exactly. to, to paying feed... Paying them millions of dollars. Yeah. Like getting like yeah. really wealthy hacks. And, and, and just feeding those algorithms for, for social media so that it's showing up among people who just, yeah, just breeds... Distrust and and that. So I I think you're right. I think it's probably overstated sometimes, but but that seems to be what drives our national conversation, and that is troubling. Right, so so the three think major things that came out of today: use of the English language is key for, for <laughs> persuasion or just for effectiveness. Um, a general curiosity about the world. What was the middle one? Commitment to be fair. Fairness. Curiosity. And learn how to write. Yeah. <laughs> Julie Dow, thank you so much for being part of the show. We'll do it again. Thank you. It's the Jake Feinberg Show. We'll see you later.